my voice is, I wasn't angry. But if you know me at all, I'm fairly intense. And so when I coach, I yell. Which means that I'm going to be a little hoarse. We might run out of gas. So since, we, since, we're, um, since we're spreading out more and more, right, as the weeks go by, and we're further and further and back, I won't shame you. You're adults. You can sit where you please. But like, somebody remind me, if somebody asks a question that you can't hear, if you don't hear it and I forget to repeat it, just wave at me, okay? So y'all sit wherever you like. Yes, thank you. Just like that. Thanks. Um, okay, we're going to look at Second Timothy, <coughs> sorry, First Timothy chapter 2, just the first seven verses this morning. And, um, <coughs> sorry, I really, <coughs> I'm running out of gas before we start. It's okay. So, um, just a couple reminders. One of the things, and if you need, if you come in and you need a paper, would you, would you set those at the back, actually? Yeah, would you send them in that way people who come in can just kind of, thanks. Just kind of remind you briefly of where we've been. So Brian has set the book up the last couple of weeks. And uh, in the first chapter, Paul has been talking about um, the false teaching that has been going on. And we've gone over some of the characteristics of that false teaching, right? In terms of <coughs> an asceticism... Um, that leads actually teachers and people that they're teaching to licentiousness and uh, a loose life, um, quarreling and dissensions and uh, infighting among each other. And it was contrasted with Paul trying to say that, look, that true, um, that true teaching and true doctrine and true belief and the true gospel leads people to a life that looks beautiful. And so... Last week, Brian talked about kind of this false doctrine and then how Paul himself was the shining example as the foremost of sinners, right? The one who you would never believe that God could save, that he's the picture of how beautiful the gospel of God's grace is to rescue the worst of these. And in chapter 2 and 3, Paul turns away from the idea of false teaching really more now to what this gospel produces in the lives of people. What the beauty of the outworking of the kindness of God actually works in their lives. And so, we're going to do just this first little bit in chapter 2. And what Paul is going to say is that the, that the outworking of His grace, right? That the true gospel leads people, moves people uh, to love that issues from a pure heart. That's that uh, chapter 1 verse 5. And today it's going to talk about prayer. Now, I'm going to read this text and then I'm going to do just a couple of minutes of disclaimer for us, okay? So, let me read. It says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life Godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, thank you that, um, that you desire the church to lead gentle, good lives and that that speaks volumes to the world. And thank you that you have a heart that is wide. And that your great compassion and love desires for all kinds of people to come to a saving knowledge of you, to rest in you. And help us, Lord, as we discuss today. Help us to be gracious and kind. Help us to be thoughtful. Help us to listen. Help us to have good conversation. Help us to understand um, that we might look like the church that you love and desire for us to look. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, there's, I'm going to do a little disclaimer on politics for a second, okay? Um, I'm not going to tell you how I vote, and it doesn't matter for this discussion, okay? So, I'm going to lead with that kind of statement to get everybody up at arms for just a moment, okay? My disclaimer is this this morning, that I want us to be gracious and lay down some of our arms for a moment, not lay down our convictions but below here is a, is a quote from a guy by the name of Dr. Uh, James Davison Hunter. He's a professor at UVA. He's written a book <coughs> excuse me, called To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Everybody yawn. What a boring title. But a really good book. Okay. Now, he is making a claim that culturally we have reduced everything as a power struggle of politics, that the only way we as a culture know how to address anything is through the political vein. And he's trying to say that that is an unnecessary narrowing of the way we should view issues in humanity. And I think it is actually helpful as we listen to what Paul is saying this morning through this chapter, okay? Hang in. I was up late last night because I went to see a bunch of soccer games, and then we grilled, and then I played laser tag in the park with my son against uh, kids versus adults, and then I watched my LSU Tigers get beat, and then I stayed up late and worked. So I'm going to read to you, and I know that that's crazy, so if you're tired like me, like sip your coffee or do something. I, I think this is a helpful little quote from him about how we view one another, Okay. He says, it is hardly surprising that the language of partisan politics has come to shape how we understand others. The identity of public actors, and he would would go on actually in other places to say more than that, almost everybody in the public vein, is determined to a large degree by their partisan attachments, either real or presumed, or assumed. This is not only seen in how we tend to label people and their actions and motivations ideologically as conservative, liberal, traditionalist, progressive, feminist, fundamentalist, and the like. Such labels credit or discredit depending on the group one is in or the relationship one has. Taken to an extreme, identity becomes so tightly linked with ideology that partisan commitment becomes a measure of their moral significance, of whether a person is judged 
good or bad. This is the face of identity politics. Okay? The conflation of the public with the political. That's this title. This turn toward politics means that we find it difficult to think of a way to address public problems, by which he means collective, common, or shared problems, or issues in a way that is not political. Politics assumes the public so much so that they become conflated. And so instead of the political realm being seen as one part of public life, all of public life tends to be reduced to the political. And therefore, it's taken sides. Okay, so, I know that's not the Bible, and I'm not holding us to this as the biblical standard, but somebody summarize for me what James Hunter is trying to say there, if you can. Because I think it's helpful. What was he trying to say? And we, yeah, and we, what do we do with people? We have our ideological, political stance. What do we do with people? We group them. Us, them. <laughs> okay. And, and she states the, the clearly obvious. There's no love in that deal, right? So, Yes. Okay, so listen, I'm not telling you that you have to suspend judgment on issues per se. Okay, not doing that. But Paul is about to ask us as the people of God to do something that in the culture where we are divided by political ideology and politics is the only grid through which we see people and issues, that makes what Paul is attempting to do at times difficult. Okay, that's really my point of this, laying that out there for Hunter. I think it's helpful. The other kind of thing to, before we step into the text is this idea that God establishes and controls all human authorities. Okay? So, when he's about to call us to pray and do some other things, the backdrop for which the rest of the Bible speaks to this issue is that God is the one who establishes governments and authorities and kings and superintendents of schools and police and mayors and everybody else. Senators and congressmen and congresswomen, right? So, Romans 13, right? Paul, again, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And he goes on. Okay, so Paul says it. Peter says it. 
Okay, down there. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. John says it. John's Gospel. Okay, when Jesus is actually speaking. So, look. We could, we could suspend any talk about the biblical text and now spend the next 30 minutes arguing about whether or not the government is doing what the text say it's doing, okay? We're not going in this morning to whether or not we should oppose the government. That's another discussion for another day, okay? But the Bible clearly states that the human institutions of government are placed there by God under His authority and that we as His people are actually supposed to submit. So I've, um, a friend has written a commentary on 1 Timothy and he says that the authority that the civil government has, down there on the bottom of page 1, the power that it wields is given to it by God. Its authority does not come ultimately from the consent of the people, although consent does have a role in how it works. But ultimately, its authority is not the function of social contracts or landslide election victories. No, the authority that a civil government has comes as a consequence of the fact that it has been established by God, sometimes with, but not always with, the consent of the governed. That's the hard pill to swallow. Okay? So, that's the backdrop I wanted you to see before we... Can I get one more copy of that sheet? No. <clears throat> Will you share it? Okay. Thanks. Okay. <clears throat> now, why do I spend all that time on the front end? Okay. Because this is where Paul is going. What does this gospel, right? What does the true gospel produce in the hearts of people? That's this theme through 1 Timothy. What does true doctrine and truth and the true gospel produce in us as his people? And this is what he says. The first thing I want us to look at in the first two verses is the call to and scope of prayer and thanks. Now, what does Paul ask us to do in the beginning of verse 1? What's he call us to? Pray? What else? He's piling up terms. So, come on. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the easy softball. To pray, to make intercessions and supplications. And everybody stop. We would be awesome if that was it, right? Man, we, we could get on board with that one. Pray for those dirty, rotten liberals or pray for those dirty, rotten conservatives or whichever side you fall on, right? We could get on board with that one, right? What's the last one? Oh. <laughs> okay, pray and give thanks. The call that Paul says that the true gospel works is that we as his people are to pray and supplicate and intercede and be thankful for the authorities and governments that are over us. Okay. Okay, so there's the call. How about the scope? 
Pray and give thanks and make supplications for who? For all people. Now, this is where he's driving at the end. But Paul says that the gospel in our hearts makes us to be a people and calls us to be a people who prays and supplicates and intercedes and gives thanks for all kinds of people. And then he narrows in on kings and governments and authorities. Now, why is that so strange? Think about the context in Paul's day. Who was in charge? Caesar. Right? Caesar. And the Roman government who subjugated peoples, who exacted (laughs) grievous taxes from the land. who conjured up and convinced some of your own people to take your money from you and profit from you in terrible ways. Who at the end, whose life would Paul be forfeited by? And what is Paul telling us that we're... Like, so this isn't... Posh Paul sitting on the sidelines in some place where life is easy, right? This is Paul telling the people when his own life is being threatened that we are to pray and give thanks for all people. And then he narrows in on a people whom would be despised. Okay. Why is that difficult for us? Okay. Who are the heroes? So he said we want to pray for the heroes. Who are the heroes in our book? The ones who agree with us. The heroes are the ones who agree with us. (laughs) Right? Because they're right. (laughs) Yes. Excuse me? That's why it's hard. Right. Yes. And, huh? We're rebels by nature, but that, that comment that hones in that says, behind the veil, we struggle because we think we're worthy of grace and we think that whatever your flavor is and what you're against, that they're not. Now, it's interesting. We live in a world where justice, at least in our place, maybe not. Like, you may have the example of that, the way that's not true. And I'm not, I'm not mad that we're Americans, I'm thankful. But as Americans, justice is something we tend to assume we have a process for, right? But because, because the culture, like, and I think Hunter is so right on this, we have, we have politicized and divided so widely that we forget some of the privileges that we actually have. So what government is actually supposed to do is to allow people in the church to live with a modicum of freedom. And what 
what do we have? I mean, what can we say positively? Now, look, I know taxes are going up. I know we're feeling the pinch. I get it. I was dumb enough to buy my house where I did, where the property taxes are through the roof. It's my fault. I know. It's a good... I get it. But what can we say as Americans in terms of the place we live? Because who's established our authority? And what, what do we experience? What, what do we experience in our neighborhoods right now? A lot of freedom. A lot of protection. A lot of good. Okay? So there is this scope that Paul is calling us to. It is a wide scope. We're to give thanks. And the interesting thing, y'all want to talk about that? But I think what I tried to do with the last is, part of the reason we should be praying for all people, especially authorities, is that I think because at times we, we get so divided on one thing that we, you feel like sometimes we forget how good we have it. Is that fair? Okay. Pray for all folks. And, and what should those prayers be? Now, what does he do? He says, for all positions, and then he turns it in the second half of one, and this is the hope that we have, what civil authorities will allow. What is he saying? That we pray for kings and people in high positions, we pray for the governments, that we might be able, I think that's what he's trying to say here, that we as the people of God might be able to do what? Lead peaceful lives and quiet lives and what? And godly lives and that we can be dignified in every way. So he's kind of giving us a reason why we want to pray for governments, that the church might be able to... Now, what is... Um, it's interesting. There are ways in which individualism has risen to a fever pitch in our culture, right? Our view of what the pursuit of happiness and individual liberty kind of has become the sum. I think what the gospel starts to try to push against is this notion that our freedom is simply just so that we can have our happy lives, get our nice house, have a boat on the weekend, have a cocktail on Saturday night, if you do or don't, whatever your you know, flavor, or a lemonade, right? Get up Sunday morning, go to church, have happy children, peaceful, prosperous lives, die, be buried, remembered well, and go on about your business, right? I mean, I, that is my struggle. But he's saying we want to pray for rulers so that the church might actually be a decent witness, right? That we might lead these good lives. Now, what, what he's doing here, I think he's contrasting the false teachers, right? What, what have we seen the false teachers' lives look like? Loud, calling attention to themselves, Right? divisive, contentious. And he's saying that what we want the church to look like is this. Okay? 
And what does he say about that? Well, okay. If um, maybe it's worth a question. If what we're what we're hoping is that the church can lead godly lives and quiet lives and peaceful lives and good lives, um, does that mean that um, is that is that settling us into just simply one personality type? Like it's only the quiet, meek, and mild people. What if you're what if you're a big influential person? Can you be that? Can you wield influence in the public realm and this still be true of you? Yeah. That, that, is a beautiful, that is a beautiful picture of what he's saying, right? The true gospel produces. That begins with dignity and quietness and godliness and God. What does he say in verse 3? What does he do? What is the, what is the result of that? And he, this is where he starts tying this together. What's his response? That lives that look like that are what? They're good and pleasing to God. And that they're noticed by the world around. And that the reason that God wants us to live good and quiet and pleasing lives that pray for authorities and pray for people we disagree with and pray for people who are actually contradicting the laws of God, ethical, moral, philosophical, epistemological, in every way, why does God want us to both pray and lead those kind of lives? So that what? Someone said it out there. So that people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That what the gospel produces in us is actually a willingness to not lay down our convictions but to not just hammer people with our convictions, but to actually pray and live godly, gentle, dignified lives as we hold our convictions firmly but winsomely. Because God wants all kinds of people to come to a saving knowledge of Himself, right? Yeah. Or am I adding to the attention of the gospel and pretending like, oh, well, the world's going to hate me or I 
Since this is the first time you've ever asked me that question, no, I can't clear that all up. Uh, but I love the, I think that's the right question. I don't, I don't know, because I don't, I don't have, right, I don't have the, the look behind the veil of your heart. In that. But I love the question. I, and I'm not, I'm not skating off. Like, I think the church, I think we all feel that. How do we live in such a way that we can hold our convictions and say truth to people in love and graciousness, knowing that that might bring offense at times, and yet still continuing to pray for people who will hate us and persecute us? And I, like, I love the question. I, I would lie if I said, I would, like, because for me to go further right now is to go, uh, uh, that's the right question. I, we're going to live in that tension. And I think all I can do at the moment is affirm that and be like, man, let's walk together in that and try to talk that out and pray that out and think about that. And if that's too easy of an answer, I don't mean it to be. I just feel like if I do anything else, that's preacher gone, blah, 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 right? Sorry. Yes. The question was, she feels the tension of living her life weekly on a basis where she's trying to love people who are not Christians and trying to enter into their world as a friend, but also as a faithful, dignified liver and witness to the truths of the gospel. And that becomes hard because she's, she feels conflicted internally that at times she's not sure if she's really living faithfully a witness that has the right to offend people? Or she's compromising, right, her faith and her witness to Jesus by trying to love people. And it's confusing to know which one is which. Anybody else feel that tension and confusion? I know. And I, I, no, 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 don't apologize. I think that's the thing I want us to wrestle with. I, I think it's if we're not wrestling of that and we're sure one way or the other, that becomes problematic. And I, everywhere I look, I, I don't want it to be true. I love comfort. And I think, man, some days I wish Jesus hadn't used the metaphor of death. I mean, like, uh, but he did. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to, can I run us? I love it. I love that. Okay, look. We pray for all kinds of people, and this is verse 4. And I'm going to run through this because I want us to get a little practical at the end. Okay. This is good, pleasing in the sight of God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm going to step over this. If you want to talk about this more, come afterwards. That is Paul saying that he desires all to be saved as a matter of distinction, not as a matter of exception. God wants all kinds of people to be saved. Okay? Come and talk afterwards if you have trouble with that as a text. And I really mean that. The reason he says this is that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, right? And a mediator is a go-between. 
Right? So he's saying, and this is the beauty of Paul. If you look at the context of Paul, what did Paul say about himself in chapter 1? That he's the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. That as a man who was morally conservative, yet full of hatred, anger, spite, murder, persecuting the church, and therefore one deserving God's wrath and condemnation most of all. That though he was wrapped on the exterior as one approved by most of the people in his neighborhood, he was deserving of God's wrath. And yet God had mercy on him. And what is he... This is beautiful. Verse 7. Who has God... Where has God sent the Pharisee of Pharisees? Where has God sent Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees? I mean, wouldn't Paul have loved if he had been the apostle to his own people? But, but where did God send him to be an apostle? To the liberals. Darn it. Come on, Jesus, anywhere but the conservatives. Don't send me there. Because God wants all kinds of people to come to a saving knowledge of himself. Because there is one mediator for all kinds of people, Jesus, right? Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is this testimony given at the proper time. Okay, guys, we pray for all kinds of people because what is God's heart? To have mercy on all kinds of people. So, let's get practical. So what for a second? Let's begin here. <clears throat> if you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you know? Someone put him there. If you sit here this morning... And you, in the rottenness of your heart, have found the grace and mercy of Jesus. Why is that? Because God desires that all kinds of people come to a saving knowledge of Himself. And you're the picture of God saving sinners. You're the picture. I'm the picture of that. In all my self-righteous, moralistic, khaki-wearing, izod-wearing, loafer-wearing, perfectionistic, last-of-the-burger-boys, do-gooderism, full of self-righteous, look down my nose at everybody who was not like me in high school self. And Jesus saved me. Which is where we begin. Okay. Let's have some fun for a moment. Who do you find it hard to pray for? Now, listen. Stop for one moment. I really want this church to be the place where Democrats and Republicans come 
and find Jesus. Because both of them need Christ. And I want this community of believers to be the place where all kinds of people can come and explore and see the goodness of a merciful God and find His saving grace. So as we answer these things, this is what I actually want us to assume. That the people who don't agree with us might be sitting next to us. That's okay. Who do we find it hard to pray for? People that have harmed us. Oof. Man, there's, there's a loaded rock. Yeah, there's a hard one. He said people that have harmed us. We find it hard to pray for. Yeah. Okay. Who else do we find it hard to pray for? Unbelieving family members. Why? Because you don't think they'll ever change? And sometimes we're mad at them. But we don't think they'll ever change. That wasn't, I'm, I'm not putting words in your mouth on that. Okay. Okay. Folks that even say they might be believers but don't necessarily in our eyes look like it. Y'all are being so tame. Come on, let me, yes. People who've harmed us. Yep. Okay. People who look down on us. Okay. People we look down on. Y'all are being so gentle. It's just awesome. <coughs> yes. <laughs> no, 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 I don't. I don't want you to give names like. I think that's a good one. Yeah. Come on, I'm going to toss it out there, y'all. Yes. gonna get into it right now we're gonna get now we're gonna get real yeah the schools 
So guys, look, what I want us to do is I want us to all put our weapons down like this is the beauty. Right? If the gospel is a good place, then this is true. Like, our president planned parenthood. Because, yeah, like, the way we caricature Muslims, stop. Don't hear what I didn't say. But even praying for extremists, but how about the people in our community who are that by virtue of upbringing and have known nothing else? And and what I think the gospel calls us to do is not just be mad at the president or whatever political official if it's the one you don't like now, it might be the one you don't like next time around. And it's worth at least saying, right, that part of the reason we struggle is, and I'm just writing it down there, the problem of our own hypocrisy or lack of sincerity. Have you ever thought that the reason you don't pray for these people is that you've actually tried it once? And you felt so fake that you're like, I mean, that's obviously not worth anything. Why would I do that? God can't listen to that prayer. Right? Did y'all hear that in the back? No? Okay, y'all, did you hear it? No? Yes? So, so, yeah, he's saying that at times we struggle because we think, that we really think of God as deistic. As long as he kind of gives us what we want, we just kind of leave him alone and we don't believe that he's really sovereign over things. I, so look, we've got to be done in two minutes. I, I'm going to ask you just one thing. I, sorry. I want us to come back to, at least I want to practically say, hey, I don't think our insincerity or hypocrisy should stop us from praying. I actually want to look at you and say, the text says pray for these people. And, and I think, we didn't even get into what we should pray, right? That, that righteousness is actually part of them, that they would come to a saving knowledge of faith, that even if they don't, the Lord would help them to kind of lead in righteousness and allow the church freedom. Okay, 
The encouragement of God's heart and the wideness of His grace is, I think, what Paul was after here. We pray and we lead these lives. Why? Because this is God's heart. That people should come to a saving knowledge of Him. Now, what I want, what, at least what I want you to do, and I do, I think Sunday school ought to, you know, we ought to be practical. I think we ought to go home. I'm not going to check homework. But I think what Paul is saying we ought to do is, is we ought to go home and we ought to spend a couple minutes today as part of the Lord's Day. Or, again, this is not the Bible, right? But like, what would this let us do? Go home and reflect for a couple minutes and write down some things and some people that we will pray for. And, and I think it's the freedom, right? The true gospel actually makes us believe that we're not more deserving or, right, than anyone else, and that if we can be saved, right, then there's no one outside the pale of the saving grace of Jesus. And if that's true, and if God is really sovereign, and it really is His heart to save all kinds of people, then we as the people of God, let's go pray. So, I want to encourage you. You know, go home and write down those people. And if you know, you've got to hold your hand on the paper and make your hand write it, go do it. And pray for them. And ask the Lord to, you know, help us to be a church who is free. I mean, I do love that. We're asking that the, that the, that the place we live would be a place where we can live freely and dignified and godly lives. That may not always be true. And then in that, the church would be a witness that other people, people we would never believe, would come to a saving knowledge of the grace of Jesus. Okay? All right, let me pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for uh, this. And Jesus, thank you that you are the, the one mediator. There's so much wisdom, Lord, from you. It, I haven't even thought of that. Like, you could have sent a different kind of mediator for different kind of people, and we would have used that to separate and divide. But you sent one man to be the Savior of all kinds of people. And we rejoice as your people, and we pray that we would be a church that is pleasing, that our lives would be a sweet aroma, and that through the witness of your church, through the impetus of your great heart, you would surprise us. You would surprise us that we would find ourselves in a church sitting next to people who we would be able with freedom to look and say, you got in, I never thought you would have gotten in. And they would look at us and say, you too, I never thought you would either. And because of the grace of the gospel, we would rejoice over that. Do, Lord, what um, only you can do. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.